Hello, my friend. Before we start this amazing episode, I want to invite you to the personal Patreon page of this podcast. If you love what's being done here and want to keep the podcast and the meditations free to the public, then you can come on over to our brand new community on Patreon and donate $11.11 a month and all proceeds will go towards keeping this free, keeping this going. Plus, we'll be building a community together and I'll give you bonus material. You can explore this option in the description of this podcast or just go to patreon.com slash Dr. Reese. Let's begin. Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. So is God needy? Welcome to episode number 117. Today, I'm sitting down with the notorious Rabbi Manus Friedman, the most famous rabbi on YouTube. So sit down, relax, and take in this beautiful and important recording. Let's begin. Rabbi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. What's the healthiest way to have a relationship with God? <laughs> His way. <laughs> and that's true of every relationship. Mm. The best way to do it is their way. To have a relationship with God truly means to step out of yourself. Which is, of course, like, you know, the first step of any relationship. Step beyond yourself. Otherwise, there is no room for someone else in your world. Stepping out of yourself, that's the biggest challenge. I think in religion, given what we're taught and given what we're told, the next big hurdle is, if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to be absolutely convinced that God wants a relationship. Mm. Otherwise, it's a one-way street. That's right. You want to be closer to him, but he doesn't need you any closer, then the door is, the door is closed. Mm. You can't get closer unilaterally. Sadly, we are told over and over again that God needs nothing from you. You need him, but he doesn't need you. Mm. Then we're told to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, and it makes no sense whatsoever. He does need us, doesn't he? I think that's, that, that is a big hurdle for people who have studied a little bit of religion. Yeah. Well... If we're using the word relationship, <laughs> it makes sense. Because if you're in a relationship with another human, they need you, you need them. It's, it's a partnership. No, unless you're willing to accept that relationship with God means a one-way relationship. Since you're very dependent on him, 
you got to make sure that he's not angry at you. Hmm. Otherwise, he's not going to give you the goodies that you need. I don't think people are willing to accept that. Yeah. Still loves us, but... Well, he may love us, but not need us. Well, then you can't really have a relationship. Being the object of someone's love is not really a relationship. If they don't need you. If you're not significant in their lives, but they love you, that's, that's sheer entertainment. It's not really a relationship. Mm. It's like, for example, a husband that says, I love my wife very much, but if she left, I wouldn't be terribly upset. Is that a relationship? All right. Understood. How often would you say someone should, and it may differ between people, but should pray and speak to God? That's a very, that's a very advanced, a very advanced stage in a relationship with God. Of course, we can speak to God, and we must, because communication is a big part of a relationship. But to get to that point where you actually have something to say to God, that's, that's pretty impressive. Hmm. I think the first stage is, can you at least let God initiate the relationship and you try to just reciprocate? That would be the first step. Right. Because it has to begin with him. He's the creator. So if he doesn't initiate the relationship, there's there's no way you can start it. There's there's no there's no point of meeting. He has to start. And if he initiates a relationship, it's pretty serious. What's an indication of that? Of that start. Well, firstly, the fact that you're alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a pretty serious indication. <laughs> Could it be someone going through a really tough time and maybe in a fit of crying, they just feel this overwhelming need to drop to their knees and talk or something to that effect? That could happen. It's not a very happy scenario. I don't know. Too many people come to God out of desperation. That, that shouldn't be the preferred way. And we shouldn't wait for, for when we're desperate. I don't, I don't think God wants us to come to him in desperation. The fact that we're alive and the fact that we sense that our existence is purposeful, that there's actually a reason and a purpose for our existence. That's our first contact with God. Because if there is a purpose for my existence, it means that someone caused me to exist for a reason. Right. I'm not an accident. Right. I don't just happen to exist. I exist for a reason. Well, whose reason? Not mine, because I don't ask to, to be born. So obviously, someone 
who caused me to exist, did so with a reason. Well, that's a pretty big compliment. Now I need to find out who that is and what is the reason. How about forgiveness? That's a powerful thing. Yeah. The sense of guilt that we all live with. Is that just pathological? Are we just crazy? What are we guilty of? Why does everybody feel guilty? Yeah. So again, if there were no creator and we don't exist for a purpose and therefore can mess up the purpose, then what are we guilty of? See, if we're just evolving, <laughs> then evolve as best you can. What are you guilty of? Right. So the fact that we carry this sense of guilt is another proof that we have a built-in sense of purposefulness. And if I think I messed up my purpose, I feel guilty. Without that sense of purposefulness, I'm not messing up anything. What am I feeling guilty about? What about something we did wrong? It, wrong for what? Wrong? What's wrong? Well, someone um, going down the wrong path, or maybe they steal from someone. Yeah, and what is wrong with stealing? <laughs> I'm just trying to evolve and survive. So if I can steal better than you, I'll survive and you won't. So what am I doing wrong? I'm surviving at your expense. Well, that's the way the game goes. <laughs> The fittest survive, and those that are not the fittest don't. So who invited or invented or, or accepted this notion that you can misbehave? By what standard are you misbehaving? Mm. So, I mean, we're here for a human experience. That's actually one of the things that Hitler hated the most about, about Jews. He blamed the Jewish people for introducing this unhealthy thing called conscience. He thought that that was, that that was a weakness and, and a disease in the human system because a human being should be a barbarian. Hmm. You need to kill somebody, kill them. Don't lose sleep over it. That's a healthy human being. <laughs> Acceptance. And it was based on Darwinian theory. If we're all fighting for our survival, then just do whatever it takes to survive. And where does this guilt come from? Yeah. Jews invented it. <laughs> so instead of accusing Jews of poisoning the well, <laughs> He accused Jews of poisoning the human spirit. Guilt is also pointing towards the past, which is already over, right? Yeah. So if you're guilty of something from a year ago, it's already done with. You're, you're, you're here now. Yeah, what's the difference now? That is not true of 
the vast majority of human beings throughout history. That's a pretty strong indication of something real. And that something real is not you angered God and now he's going to get you. That's so childish and primitive. It's worse than that. Mm. You have a purpose. You have an intended um, destination that you're supposed to get to. And what you just did is going to block your access, is going to set you back. So you are failing in your mission. That's why you feel guilty. Not because God is angry at you, which he may be. Right. But what you're really feeling is that you, you, you ruined something very valuable in your existence, in, in your being. Well, what is that? Your innocence. Yeah, well, what does innocence mean? It means you were going along on the right track, leading to your proper and, and intended destination. And then you got off at the wrong stop. Mm. So that's not some kind of competition between the human being and God. And I'm trying to survive God's wrath. It's much more personal. How do we get back on that track if we uh, get off at the wrong stop? Okay, so here's where another crucial idea comes in. If I'm here to be perfect and I do something that ruins my perfection, it scars me, and now I'll never be beautiful again, then we got a problem. How do you fix it? Well, you can have a little plastic surgery, but that leaves its own scars. But we're here to serve him. And we were serving him properly. And then I took a wrong turn or got off at the wrong stop. And for that moment, I stopped serving him. So what's the solution? Get back to serving him. <laughs> the solution him. is go back to serving him. Yeah. You're a little scarred? That's okay. Scarred people can serve God. If I didn't serve God today, what should I do? Serve him tomorrow. <laughs> it's like being on a diet. <laughs> you fall off, you get back on. <laughs> what's the best way to serve God? The best way to serve God is to do for him what his intention in creation was all about. God wants to be invited into this human, physical, finite, ugly condition until this world becomes his primary home. In other words, God wants us to bring him down to earth. Now, why does he need us to bring him down to earth? Well, because if he simply invites himself into this earth, <laughs> it wouldn't be earth anymore. It would become heaven. God wants the earth to invite him, the human condition to become receptive to him.
We are the human condition. We have freedom of choice. It's up to us to either invite God or resist God. So the one thing God cannot do is make us love him. Doesn't that make sense? Hmm. If God is so powerful, why doesn't he just make us love him? Right. Because <laughs> if he makes us love him, it's not our love, it's his. Right. It takes our free will away. Right. Without free will, we don't love him. He's loving himself by creating creatures who love him. Free choice means when we love God, it's our love. And that's what he wants. So he has to give us freedom of choice in that. Mm. Everything else he makes better choices. So let him choose where you live. Let him choose your talents. Let him choose when you're born, when you die. They're all his choices, and we're grateful for that because his choices are better. But the one thing he cannot choose for us is how we feel about him. Mm. So what does God want? God wants us to invite him into our thinking, into our feelings, into our experience, not by forcing it by our choosing to become kind of one with him in a way right let, let me let me give an example the first human being adam mm -hmm. was created half male and half female one side like two like two sides of a coin one side was male the other side was female one being, but half male and half female. Then God separated them. And we had two separate beings, one completely male, one completely female. Mm -hmm. Immediately after separating them, God tells them to get married, to cleave to each other and become one which is kind of strange because they were very much one, inseparably one. And yet God separates them and says, oh, you need to become one. So get married and become one again. What, what is the point of this? The beauty of it is Adam was created half male and half female, but they were back to back. They didn't see each other. By separating them and then instructing us to get married, God is saying, now you can become one face to face. And that's why intimacy in, in marriage must be face to face. What is the difference between back to back and face to face? One of the differences, back to back is involuntary. It's not personal. 
I don't even know who I'm connected to. Face to face means I know you. I choose you. I face you. So I give myself to you and it's you that I'm giving myself to. Whereas back to back means, yeah, we're connected. I don't know why, I'm not sure to whom, I didn't do it. It's not personal and therefore not intimate. Face to face means intimate. So really every time a married couple are intimate, not face to face, it kind of takes a little bit out of the out of the relationship. Interesting. It takes a chunk out of the relationship. It distances them. It creates an impersonal connection. And that's not what marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be deeply personal. And the same thing with our relationship with God. Our soul was once a little piece of God. God separates that soul from himself, sends it down into a body, gives it freedom of choice and says, now be mine. So obviously we can ask the question, before I was born, I was completely yours. Mm. I knew nothing else. Yeah. So what's the point? The point is, before you were born, you knew nothing else because there was nothing else. It was not your choice. Now that you have freedom of choice, if you decide to be his, now it's face to face. And that's what we're looking for, really, in religion. We're not looking for rules and regulations. We're not looking to win awards or get a place in heaven. That's not the point at all. What we're looking for is to be able to see God face to face, mm. to know him, to know what he wants, what he needs, how he needs it, and to do it for him. How do we know what he wants? He has to reveal it, obviously. We can never guess. The husband who keeps guessing what his wife wants <laughs> is obviously in trouble half the time. Yeah. So, so God have... gives us a Torah, yeah. which is a, a very detailed and intimate description of himself what he loves, what he hates, what gives him pleasure, what gives him pain. Very, very revealing. God bears his soul to us in the Torah. I don't know why or how, but somehow we turn the Torah into a law book. And now the question is, how many laws do you want to obey? How, how few laws can you get away with? But that's not what it is. It's face to face. So one sincere mitzvah can outweigh ten sins.
how come God did a bunch of talking in the Torah and then eventually kind of goes silent? Yes, God went on mute. But here, here's the point. After telling us everything we need to know about him, God went on mute. And he now needs us to unmute him, to be his voice to the world. That's the chosen people concept. Chosen to be God's voice. Now, for many, many years, we couldn't fulfill that role because the world wouldn't let us speak. We were muted by pogroms, by, by inquisitions, by crusades, and then the Holocaust. Mm. So you would expect that by now we have completely forgotten how to speak or what to say. We've been muted for so long. The miracle is we never forgot the message. We never really became mute. We were just biding the time, waiting for the moment when the world will unmute us and then we can deliver our message, which is now, which is what we're doing right now on this Zoom podcast. Yeah. We've been unmuted, but we need the courage of our convictions to speak proudly, to speak clearly with confidence. We've preserved the message. It hasn't changed. We haven't watered it down. We haven't created uh, our own interpretations. It's, it's God's voice, but we have to unmute it. So the internet, like everything else, happened exactly when it was necessary and useful. Mm. No, no, not a moment sooner. Yeah. Be still and know that I am God. Is there something to that where if we get really still, if we get really meditative, where God may it's answer? Not meditate. It's not meditate. Silence the noise in your head, which is all about yourself, and deliver the message that you were given to be delivered to the world. In other words, get yourself out of the way. Don't be self-conscious. When you deliver the message, you're not being you, you're being the messenger. That's the quietness. It doesn't mean sit on a mountaintop and, and think. No, speak loudly. But get yourself out of the way because that's just static and noise. Drop the ego. Yeah. So silence one part of you so that the other part can speak clearly, confidently, and authentically. Hmm. Are you an Orthodox Jew? Are you a conservative Jew? Are you religious? We got to get rid of that. That's the noise that has to be silenced. Because the message is not about orthodox or religious. The message is, 
how to bring God into the world. Everyone needs to do that, no matter what label you put on yourself or others put on you. So silence that unhealthy part, and then you can speak like a mensch. Like a mensch, yes. It is very hard to drop that ego. We're, we're, we're programmed since kindergarten, you know, and uh, we have a personality. It's tough. Well, a big part of our ego has already been eliminated simply by our history. If anything, we don't have enough ego. Hmm. We feel inferior, we feel em embarrassed, like we have to justify our own existence. Like, look like Israel. You have to defend our existence? <laughs> Every time I hear that expression, it makes me we have a right to defend ourselves. <laughs> what other country ever says that? That is so pathetic. Why do you need to say that? Who doesn't have a right to defend themselves? Even your dog does, right? But Israel keeps saying that. Hey, we have a right. And sometimes we get really excited because the United States said that we have a right to defend ourselves. See, that's damaged. Our ego is damaged. We have to regain confidence because we've lost it. We're egoless. We're defensive. We're apologetic for our very existence. Now, that's what 2,000 years of abuse can do to you. Mm. But it's time to heal. And, and, it's, and it's healing nicely. About a year ago, I had Rabbi Rami Shapiro on this podcast. And I, I told him this, my little story, which I'll share with you as well, that yeah, I was, my mom's Jewish, so I was raised Jewish, and I had the bar, bar mitzvah, and I wasn't very interested in it at 12 years old, going into 13. Like, why? Why? I don't want to do this. <laughs> uh, but traditional Jewish, where you go to school and you become an outcast because only one or two kids are Jewish and everyone else is doing Santa Claus. And somewhere along the way, I, I just dropped it. But then later in life, in my 30s, when I started really getting, doing my research and stuff, I discovered Kabbalah and everything. I was like, man, if they taught me this, I would have <laughs> been interested. Why is it that, based on what I know, Kabbalah isn't taught until someone's around 40 years old? Well, it's no longer true. Okay. Kabbalah can be taught to younger people, assuming that they have the maturity to appreciate what they're hearing. Mm. 
So it could be that had you been taught the same thing when you were younger, it wouldn't have had the same effect as when you hear it as an adult. But there are ways that you can teach even Kabbalistic ideas on a, on a fundamental school level for, for the average student. One of the major principles of Kabbalah is that God is the needy one because he created the world with this vast eternal plan. Every detail matters and so on. That's what you learn in Kabbalah. That can be communicated to children. What a line. God is needy. Wow. See, that's why it was for many, many years reserved only for the, not only for over 40, but in addition to being over 40, you ought to also have to be a scholar in all other parts of the Torah. And in addition to that, you had to be an extra sensitive soul. So even among the greatest sages, not everyone was allowed to study the, the Kabbalah. It was really, really limited, restricted. Mm. What was the sensitivity that you had to have before you could study to, uh, Kabbalah? The sensitivity was, if I told you that God needs you more than you need him, how will that affect you? If you're not a really sensitive, romantic soul, you would lose respect for God and blow him off. He needs me? <laughs> then I'll do whatever I want. And too bad for him. That was the danger. But about 300 years ago, or maybe 400 years ago, the sages of the time decided that we are not going to make it without the Kabbalah. Because people were no longer inspired to observe and to serve God for their own benefit. We had to tell the world that serving God is for God's benefit. And that as you serve God, the fringe benefits are yours, the perks. Of course, if you're serving God, good things will happen naturally. But you're serving him, not yourself. Today, we see it more clearly than ever. You try to tell someone today, you know, if you keep kosher, you'll live longer. If you keep Shabbos, your family will be together more often. Nobody wants to hear it. Stop telling me how to live my life. To take it even a step further, not only don't I want to be told how to live my life, I'm not sure I even want to have life. So if you can tell me that by doing certain things, I will live five years more, I'm not sure I want it. Yeah. 
what's so great about life? Right. No one ever asked that before, unless they were severely depressed. Right. But today, everybody's asking it. Is the Torah a history book or a bunch of mystical parables with great meaning? Or both? Or both. Everything in Torah is true, accurate, and literal. So the historic events described in the Torah are also true. Not that it's a history book, because most history books are not true. <laughs> most history books were written with a bias. Yeah. The Torah is simply true. Now, I had this experience. I was sitting in the airport, and this guy approaches me and launches into a little sermon. Mm. He's an evangelist, he's a missionary, right. and he starts telling me about every word in the Bible is true. <laughs> it is the word of God and every word is true. Nothing I could disagree with. Yeah. But then he says, after about 15 minutes, he says, so what is your relationship with the Bible? So he used the word relationship. Hmm. So I took that literally and I said, I'm a Kohen, which means I'm a descendant of Aaron. So Aaron is my grandfather, which means that Moses is my uncle hmm. and Miriam is my aunt. His mouth fell open. <laughs> he mumbled something and he walked away. which left me wondering what surprised him, what shocked him. He gave me a 15-minute sermon about how every word in the Torah is true. Mm. Every word in the Bible is true. Mm. So there was an Aaron, right? He had children, right? They had children, right? So yeah. why are you so shocked that I'm one of those children? Right. You see, when he said true, when he said every word in the Bible is true, he meant true in a religious sense. We believe in its truth. Is it actually true? Never thought of that. It was his belief that it's true. He never thought that true meant literally, factually correct. But the Torah is literally, factually correct. Except in those cases where the Torah is using metaphor. Mm. Is the parting of the parting of the Red Sea metaphor or fact? Actual, literal, physical. God intervened. 
helped out. <laughs> yes. There's even there's even archaeological evidence for it. Because what happened was thousands of of Egyptian soldiers drown at that event. Right. That that should show up in the record of the population of Egypt after that for a long time. And for a long time, if you check the history of the of Egypt, there were far more women than men. So it's it's a fact. Do you think Noah's Ark will ever be discovered? Absolutely factual. Yeah. You think they'll be able to find the, the ship? They must. It's up there somewhere. They got to find it. Some claim they have found it. Yeah. Hmm. There are a lot of mystical meanings in there, too, based on of my course. study of Kabbalah. Of course, because behind every physical um, reality, there is a spiritual counterpart. Like every blade of grass has an angel that stands over it and tells it to grow. Hmm. So the blade of grass is some is a physical, factual reality. But that's not all it is. The yeah, fact that it grows, that's a little spiritual. That's the invisible, the intangible. Behind that spiritual, there is something godly. So an angel that tells it to grow, that's its spiritual energy. What is an angel? An emissary from God. God appoints an angel to every blade of grass to make sure that it grows. So the physical is the blade of grass. The spiritual is the growth capacity. And the cause behind it is God himself. So that's a good segue to my next question. I, I have a good friend who grew up ev evangelical in the church, and he left the church at some point. I told him I was having you on the podcast, and I said, hey, anything you want me to ask? He said, well, I think the concept of Satan is great to bring up. The Christian imagery of him comes almost exclusively from Dante's Inferno, he says. But the actual scriptural and Judaic presentation is that of a non-evil and integral part of heavenly ecosystem. That was his statement. I was wondering what you what you think of that. Well, God created the world balanced between good and evil. Mm. It's like a scale, you know, a balancing scale. Our job is to make sure that the good outweighs the bad. Mm. Now, that balance is represented by the angels and the devils. There isn't one Satan. 
all negative traits, all negative energies are, are satanic because they're the negative side, the, the ugly side of, of, of this world. So Satan is just another word for angel, except that this angel uh, represents the, the negative side, or to put it bluntly, Satan is an angel that gets to do all the dirty jobs. So Satan is the angel of death, same thing. Satan is the evil inclination that tempts you to sin, same thing. Satan is the judge that demands punishment for misbehavior. But it's all God's doing. It's an angel like all other angels that don't have a will of their own, an agenda of their own. They're absolute uh, tools in God's hand. They don't have an opinion. So to think that Satan is some kind of a rebel fighting against God, that, that's Greek mythology. That, that's not kosher at all. There is no energy fighting God. Everything in the world is God's creation. A God created angels of kindness, angels of healing, angels of compassion. He also created angels of death and angels of temptation and angels of cruelty. They're all his angels. They do only what they were created to do. Mm. And that's all they can do. So to believe in Satan as God's antagonist, that's idolatry. Yeah. It's hell. So you could say fear is a devil as well. Fear? Yeah. You can say love. Because there's holy love and there's unholy love. Mm. So unholiness is an equal and opposite reaction to the holy. So if there is holy love, there's also unholy love. <clears throat> there's holy compassion, there's unholy compassion. There's even holy faith and unholy faith. So yeah, everything exists on both sides of the scale. Duality. What's your view of Jesus, the Christ? A mystic with a great message or a son of God? Every member of the Jewish people is a son of God. God says, you are my son, my firstborn. That's why I took you out of Egypt. So who is he referring to? The Jewish people who he took out of Egypt. As far as we know, um, he was a student in one of the academies in the times of the Talmud, times of the Mishnah, actually. And he was expelled from the yeshiva because he didn't live up to the, to the rabbinic standards. 
And so he was, he was a little resentful and he went off and started a theory, not a religion, a theory that Judaism should be based on scripture, not on rabbinic law. It wasn't so terrible, except that people took it very literally. Mm. And uh, 400 years later, it turned into a religion. A religion based on scripture without the oral law. I'm, not, I'm sure that his intentions were never to create another religion. No, he just, if I'm not mistaken, he called it the way. It's pretty nice to know that a large part of the Earth's population worships a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> who brought the message of God to people that we would never reach. Right. You got to give them that credit. Yeah. The world knows about God, creation, Adam and Eve, the Ten Commandments, because of Christianity. Right. What Christianity added was not his idea. I don't think he would approve. Who or what are the 36 righteous people? Oh, they're hidden. <laughs> <laughs> Is there always 36? And they're always hidden. So if one passes away, another one takes his place? Yeah, but there, there are far more than 36 at any given time. There are 36 that we don't that we don't know of, whose righteousness we don't fully appreciate. Which means they're not your ordinary righteousness, which we do recognize. Their righteousness is beyond our recognition. Which means they're super righteous. And they're, they don't appear. They're not going to be on YouTube. They may be. You just won't see how righteous they are. Huh. Because you, you, you will see that they are righteous, but you will never fully appreciate how righteous. How do they become that, though? Is there like an initiation? They're, they're born that way. And they are meant to be the, uh, the anchor in case everybody else lo loses their way, you always have at least 36 who are incorruptible. And so you'll always have that anchor. Could Jesus have been one of the 36 of his time frame? No. No. Okay. If he had been, his message would not have gotten so distorted. Hmm. Are the 36 of right now, this era, are they all over the globe? Are they in Israel? Everywhere. Everywhere. Interesting. Would they be considered what the Buddhists and Taoists would consider enlightened? We're all enlightened to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. Anytime you can put yourself aside and do something altruistic is enlightened. Mm 
that's a common thing. It's not so rare as we as we make it sound. A guy walking down the street and he sees a child suffering, he puts everything aside and rushes off to help the child. That, that's enlightened. It's not his child. What does he care? He does care. That's enlightened. Is how many people are fully enlightened? Mm. How many people spend their entire life, every waking hour, concerned with others rather than himself? Okay, that gets to be a little more rare. Yeah. But it's not miraculous. It's not heavenly. It's just a really good human being. Is it possible with effort to get our thoughts to go silent and only use our mind as a tool when we need it? Absolutely. It's something we all practice all the time. Is there a method of practice that you would recommend to, to someone? I was driving in the car with my granddaughter, who was nine years old at the time. Mm -hmm. She's sitting in the back seat and she says, I want a Slurpee. <laughs> I said, okay. We'll pull up to the next Seven uh, Eleven. What is it? Who's that? And uh, we'll get a Slurpee. She says, "But mommy doesn't let." Huh. I said, "I am your mother's father, <laughs> which makes me your grandfather, and my job is to spoil you." <laughs> yeah. So we'll stop and we'll get you a Slurpee. And this nine-year-old says, you know, just because you want something doesn't mean you have to do it. Wow. She's nine years old, and she can silence the noisy part of herself and choose what is right. Hmm. It should be a common daily occurrence. It is. But we can always improve on it. Mm. How important is crying? Crying. Yeah. It is very important. In fact, it is it is somewhat divine. Mm. We cry because God cries. Mm. And that's why we have to cry properly. Like everything else, there's holy tears and there's unholy tears. Mm. But the reason there is crying is because that's a feature in God and we're created in his image. So because God has the capacity to cry, we also have the capacity to cry on a human level. Crying means experiencing something that our heart cannot contain and our mind can't wrap itself around. And so it's an experience that is so intense 
we need an outlet, we need a chimney to let it out, and the tears let it out. So it's a safety valve for really intense feelings. Yeah. Either so, positive or negative. Sometimes emotions can get trapped and we got to release. And without Don't. tears, the heart would explode. Mm. Why is the Hasidic tradition so different from the, you know, the traditional Jewish American tradition? It is and it isn't. You know, there, there, there's no mitzvah, there's no commandment, there's no observance that Hasidim invented. It's all the same 613 commandments, you know. It's just the tone is different. Because you can read the Torah in many tones. Like God said to Adam, you ate from the tree I told you not to eat from. How many tones can you say those words? You can say, you ate from the tree I told you not to eat from, you are therefore going to suffer. Okay. That's a tone. Or you can say, you ate from the tree I told you not to eat from. I told you not to do it. Now you're in trouble. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or, you ate from the tree I told you not to eat from? Wow, you're something else. <laughs> you're not like an angel. You can actually stand up to me. I like that. Or, you ate from the tree I told you not to eat from? How did you know that I really wanted you to eat from it? Where did you get that insight? So Adam said, I didn't know, she knew. He gave her the credit. Mm. See, same words, completely different story. Right. So Hasidus brought a new tone to the same words. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. Animals can eat each other, but you, you're a human being. You can't. Mm. You can't, because if you do, you'll, you'll, you'll die from guilt. So he's not saying don't. He's saying you can't. You're a human being. You have too many sensitivities. You can't act like an animal. It won't work for you. See, same words. The thing with the, the Hasidic tradition that I see is just a, a great sense of community and oneness. And I think that's pretty cool. But that's the result of a certain way of thinking. Nobody went out to create a community. They taught the Torah in a certain style, and everyone attracted to that way of thinking joined. The result was a community. Right. But that was not its purpose. And that's why it's not limited to the community. We should be here on a podcast telling all the, all the 
non-Jewish listeners what Hasidic thinking is all about, because they'll find it relevant without joining the community. It's let's figure out what we're doing in this world, why we're here. If we figure that out, then we can afford to be happy. Mm. I can entertain myself and distract myself, but I'm never really happy. Unless I know what I'm doing here. To be service to God and to fulfill his needs. Because God is needy. And if I haven't done it yesterday, I can do it today. There it is. How can someone find you and explore your work, Rabbi? It's good to know.org. Type in hundreds of hours. Hundreds. <laughs> because we have the internet at the right time. Yes. The, the biggest yeshiva ever. <laughs> My last question. What's the meaning of the story of the Garden of Eden? We were not kicked out. We've volunteered to fix the ugly world. Garden of Eden doesn't need fixing. So we had the option of staying there. I say we as if I was there. <laughs> Adam and Eve had the option of staying there and enjoying a perfectly holy existence forever. The other choice was, there's an ugly world. Mm. You can't let it remain ugly forever. So they volunteered to descend to that lower world, the world of mortality, mm. and struggle against it, suffer with it, but fix it in the end. So the Garden of Eden is not earthly. It was not. Different dimension, different plane. So Adam and Eve literally sacrificed their comfort, their immortality to fulfill God's purpose, which is to elevate the ugly world, the lowest world, which is our world, and bring him down to make this world holier than heaven. So Adam and Eve are heroes, not villains. Mm. And that's why we name our children Adam, and we name our daughters Eve. Yeah, I have a cousin Adam, sure. Mm -hmm. And Chava is a very popular Hebrew name for girls. See, this is the stuff that I wasn't taught at 12 years old. There you go. <laughs> Rabbi, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time. May peace be with you.